Hello, everyone, and good afternoon, at least in the time zone that we're recording this podcast in. <laughs> Welcome to the fifth episode of the Environmental Law Coffee Breaks. The podcast is the result of a collaboration between Rethinking Climate and Youth and Environment Europe. In these specific episodes, we explore the legal angle of political advocacy and the recent legal developments in the EU and international legal spheres. My name is Sofia, and today we're here with Ioannis Agapakis from Client Earth, and we will be focusing on the protection of natural ecosystems, biodiversity, and ecosystem services. And we will also talk about the proposal for a new EU nature restoration law. Ioannis is a lawyer in the Wildlife and Habitats Programme, and his work focuses on the promotion of an ambitious law and policy framework on biodiversity conservation and governance, both within the EU and internationally. So basically, he's the perfect person to talk about this topic with. <laughs> so thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Sophia, for, for this introduction. And I'm, I'm very excited to be here and talk about nature restoration. It's exciting. Okay, maybe we'll just start off with the fundamental question. So when we talk about the climate crisis and the degradation of natural ecosystems, we often refer to it as like two sides of the same coin or also the twin crisis. Can you quickly tell us a bit why biodiversity is so important, not only for humankind, but also for fighting the climate crisis itself? First of all, um, I'm really glad that you are referring to them as, as twin crisis, because in reality, I think that many people, including our very own decision makers in the EU, still consider biodiversity loss to be kind of secondary importance or the two crises of being separate. So this is simply inaccurate because really from a policy perspective, countries cannot expect to reach their climate objectives without nature. It's as, it's as simple as that in reality. So the contribution of nature in our fight against climate change is really undeniable. And uh, this is where nature restoration comes into play, both when we talk about climate change adaptation, where we have all these ecosystem-based adaptation measures where an ecosystem is restored or conserved because it can help humans adapt to the impacts of climate change, but also in the context of mitigation where we look at um, nature as a carbon reservoir or as a carbon sink that can really sequester our carbon emissions. And I think that it is for this reason that nature should be part of any long-term emission reduction plan in reality. Yeah, that's true. And in that context, it is also often talked about the so-called ecosystem services that were defined in the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment and there's four categories. How is this concept being used today? Like, did it change? And also, why do we need to make sure that we can further benefit from these ecosystem services in the future? So, um... I think that ecosystem services are really a quite interesting concept because they have driven or guided policymaking in the last years, especially in the global north. And it is really based on the premise that nature is important because it provides certain benefits to it. It regulates 
the climate or the weather system, it supports us and it also provides us with food and a million uh, other uh, benefits. Uh, I just like to start by a caveat because many people perceive ecosystem services in a kind of um, uh, perverse or distorted way, I would say. In some cases, a very utilitarian approach of nature can make us believe that nature is really just the sum of all its benefits to us. So it's just all these commodifiable uh, elements that we can just put a price on nature and say, oh, it makes sense uh, to restore nature because that's its market value. So I just want to clarify that this is not what we mean by ecosystem services. It's something that is much more fundamental. And just with this out of the way, an example of, of what an ecosystem service uh, looks like, I think something that is all a bit relevant to most of us is, is pollination. So we have so many crops across the EU that depend on insects in order to be pollinated. And these are crops, it's not just grains, it's also some nuts or fruit bearing crops. So a collapse in the number of pollinator species on which all these crops in reality depend would lead to reduction of yields. That would have a disastrous impact on the livelihoods of farmers, on the economies of rural communities. And if we add to that climate change or soil erosion caused by other issues, you can imagine that it's all really aggravated. While on the contrary, if we boost the number of pollinators, these negative effects can be hindered and these ecosystems can be resilient for the well-being and the financial well-being as well of um, the communities that depend on these crops. I think this is maybe uh, the first example that, that comes to mind uh, when thinking about ecosystem services. Yeah, it's also super easy to forget like that perspective. And like in reality, today we're witnessing a decline in the state of various ecosystem types throughout the world and also Europe due to the way that we use lands, which then leads to factors like fragmentation and degradation, destruction. So maybe in short, or maybe not short, <laughs> what is the state of nature in the EU today and what are the current trends that we are witnessing? Well, just to, to start off, I think that looking at the facts can get really grim, really easy. So <laughs> I think we can really get depressed by just looking at the numbers. So both EU, but also globally, if you look at the synthesis reports of the International Panel on Climate Change, if you look at the global assessment of the International Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, things can get grim, but it is indeed important to have an idea and to be aware of the current condition of the ecosystems around us. So um, in the EU, uh, the most legitimate kind of numbers or scientific input comes from the State of Nature report, which is prepared by the European Environmental Agency. And there we can see that out of the habitats that member states have been monitoring, only 14% is in good condition. So 14, one, four, I think this says a lot on its own. And uh, the worst trends to be seen are mostly in uh, farmland birds and pollinator species where we have major declines in their biomass, but also the diversity within species. And this is obviously due to industrial agriculture and some unsustainable agricultural practices. And also rivers. Uh, what I found 
which was quite shocking. So uh, freshwater ecosystems in general, so floodplains, but rivers in particular seem to be doing very poorly. So in rivers, the cause is, is fragmentation. So all these barriers and dams that we have, we have more than a million barriers for rivers in Europe, many of which are simply obsolete. They're not being used for anything. They're just there. And these obviously impact uh, several species. So we have freshwater migratory species, are, such as all these upstream types of fish. And these have the worst trends. There is more than a 93% decline uh, in their numbers in the past 50 years. So I think this is uh, uh, quite um, uh, alarming. Oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, you mentioned the numbers, which are, yeah, yeah, just no, no words for that. So the trends are clear. And like listening to that, it doesn't seem like only protecting nature seems like a sufficient solution anymore. So why do we need to not only protect, but also at this point of time, restore our natural ecosystems now? And maybe can you also touch a bit upon what policy instruments have been put in place up until today that were supposed to prevent this trend from worsening? Yeah, so uh, on, on the first part of your question, this link between protection and restoration and why protection is not enough. Well, the numbers speak themselves and protection is most of the times being perceived as maintaining the status quo of an ecosystem. So designating a protected area and then leaving nature do its thing, leaving natural processes on their own. This is what we would call uh, passive restoration. It is one form of restoration, but it's not the only restoration. In some cases, habitats and ecosystems are already in such a critical con uh, condition that they need some type of active assistance or some type of active human intervention in order for these natural processes to be kick-started once again. So in this regard, protection is not enough. But protection is also not enough because we must not just look at designation of protected areas. We want to look, as we mentioned before, to ecosystem services. So we want to make sure that the condition of the areas that we are protecting is good enough for the sake of biodiversity, but also to gain all the benefits that, that have been mentioned. So from pollination, uh, climate change mitigation, water cycle regulation, and so on. And this is why we need, I would say, a paradigm shift in the way that we perceive uh, nature conservation in itself. So we need to look at landscape level. We need to look at the complex dynamics and interactions between different uses of land. And so indeed, we've had many instruments to date. So we have obviously the infamous Persian Habitats Directive, or the Water Framework Directive, or the Marine Strategy Framework Directive. Each of these directives have their own weaknesses. The most important is obviously implementation and enforcement. So as you know, member states in the EU are not doing pretty well in implementing environmental legislation. We have several uh, judgments against member states by the Court of Justice, uh, the European Court of Justice, but still member states don't really seem to align their policies to environmental legislation. And we also have non-legislative in instruments. So you, you, I'm sure you've heard of the EU Biodiversity Strategy to 2030, and most recently 
uh, in Montreal back in December 2022, we had the agreement on the Kunming to Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework. So these make reference to restoration. But what we did not have up until now was a dedicated instrument on nature restoration. And I think this is something that is missing from the EU key and something that we need if we are to transform our relationship to nature. I mean, now there's a new development on EU level. There's a new proposal for nature restoration also in the frame of EU's biodiversity strategy. So the, I'm talking about the proposal of the European Commission for the so-called nature restoration law. Can you give us a quick overview of what the proposal is about and how it is supposed to prevent the further degradation of Europe's ecosystems? I can go on and on with that one. <laughs> so this is really the, the file that I have been uh, following for, for over the past three years now. So uh, the commission came out with its, its legal proposal on a law on nature restoration, and this was last year, back in June uh, 22nd. So it is a quite flexible instrument that sets targets, both for the EU, but also for member states themselves, uh, in order to choose areas which they would like to restore and the types of measures that they would like to adopt. And the objectives there is both to uh, bring nature on a path to recovery, but there are also other objectives, secondary objectives, including climate change mitigation. So some of the ecosystems that member states will choose to restore will be those ecosystems that have the potential to sequester uh, carbon in order to also be another tool in the fight against climate change. So the essence uh, of, of the law uh, are the so-called nature restoration plans that member states will develop domestically and then the Commission will provide some observations on. And these plans will really include the measures that member states have chosen. I think what is really important to note is that the Commission really tried to diversify its approach. So it doesn't really go for a top-down approach of simply setting targets, setting obligations that member states would need to comply with. It also allows member states at their own discretion and given their own unique, obviously socioeconomic, but also ecological contexts, to take into account what they need to restore and what would be mostly beneficial for them. Obviously, this flexibility has a certain framing because we need to make sure that there is a kind of EU-wide harmonized and aligned effort to restore and that each member state really puts in the effort that corresponds to it and the burden is shared among member states. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would also quickly want to touch upon the interlinkage of nature restoration with other sectors. So there's topics like food security, climate change mitigation, and also the shift to renewables. Can you give us a few examples of how the proposed law that you just explained would impact these sectors? And also another thing, in that context, we hear a lot of in misinformation that's being spread to lower the law's ambitions, also in regard to topics like food security. Can you maybe touch a bit upon that as well? Of course, and I think this is, this is a very challenging question because it is a very legitimate consideration. Obviously, 
uh, EU landscapes and EU seascapes are under a lot of pressure. So we are using land and sea for many different purposes that we in many cases see uh, seem to be in conflict, but this is just superficial. So for me, it has really been a shock to see the war in Ukraine being instrumentalized and in many cases being used as a pretext to even justify agricultural intensification and really legitimize uh, some unsustainable agricultural practices. So in reality, science, uh, both in terms of specific research projects, but also in terms of actual uh, uh, farming practices that have been monitored in the past year, show that nature restoration does not pose a risk to food security, nor does it really threaten agricultural production in Europe. In reality, it is the opposite. Without uh, resilient ecosystems and without healthy soils, we will not be able to produce any food in Europe. And for those that really need the financial case for nature, so to speak, so why does it make sense for us to restore uh, the impact assessment of the Commission, which accompanied its legislative proposal, states that for any every euro that is being invested now to restore nature, this will have a turnover of 8 to 38 euros of profit in the future, depending obviously on the ecosystem. I mean, not that we need a financial case in order to have healthy ecosystems all around us, but obviously these type of arguments need to exist because the private sector in some cases needs this type of assurances that they will not really be uh, quote-unquote destroyed by uh, uh, by nature restoration. So a myth uh, that, as you mentioned, is quite often uh, uh, referred to or used is that restoration will take land out of production. Uh, and this is simply not true. If you look at the proposal itself, nowhere does it mention that land needs to be taken out of production in order for ecosystems to be restored. Yes, in some cases, some agricultural practices may be deemed incompatible with nature restoration, so there will need to be a transition of these practices into something more compatible with the ecological considerations of each ecosystem. So agroecology or organic agriculture. But this, again, will be something that member states will choose in which areas they will need to revisit the practices. And I think the same can be said in relation to renewables. Obviously, there is a major call to accelerate renewables, and we had the most recent revision of the Renewable Energy Directive. And obviously, yes, I totally agree, we need to make sure that restoration does not delay the deployment of renewable technology and does not delay the decarbonization of our energy system. But this is this should not be a reason to really pit nature against climate and say that um, environment is a trade-off uh, for um, climate change mitigation, because it's not. In reality, if we have better biodiversity-inclusive spatial planning, which I see as imperative, and we make sure that renewables acceleration areas avoid areas where they would have irreversible ecological damages, these types of trade-offs or conflicts, if you want, can really be minimized. So for me, it's really about 
trying to find the synergies when implementing these two different uh, instruments. We should not choose the easy way of deregulating, creating legal sandboxes, or not having environmental legislation applying to renewable energy permitting. We should rather really strive to see the, find the synergies. Well, there are already examples, both in Germany and in Denmark, where you have uh, solar panel farms, so you have a massive area of solar panels, where simultaneously you have grazing, or you have the restoration of a certain grassland, or you can rewet a peatland and also install solar panels there. The same can be said in the marine context with some offshore wind turbines. So there is room for synergies. We just need to really sit down and uh, in a biodiversity inclusive way, make sure that the two objectives uh, are being aligned and implemented in a manner that would not be detrimental to the achievement of each of the objectives. I think it's 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 really important to underscore that they are not in conflict. Nature is not in conflict with food security and nature is not in conflict with the deployment of renewables in Europe. And I mean, it's just undeniable how crucial it is that an ambitious nature restoration law is going to be adopted as soon as possible. At the moment, we're in the, like the hot phase around the nature restoration law. There's two votings happening this month, and also the voices of sectors and groups opposing this law are getting louder, which is why we need to do the same. So as my last questions, what can youth activists and also other stakeholders do to support the fight to restore nature? So indeed, as you said, this is the hot phase uh, and we need to make sure that we have the right legislative tools in place in order to restore nature, because this will also be the basis for the effective governance that happens in the future. And this will also be the basis for youth activists and civil society and grassroots movements to be consulted in the type of governance that we want for our nature. For me, it is a matter of intergenerational equity, and it's also a matter of compliance with the Arcus Convention. So we need to make sure that an ambitious instrument is in place and also an instrument that allows for the effective public participation. So, and in this regard, as you said, we need to make sure that these two votes that are this month, and then we have two more votes upcoming in June and July, are successful. And right now, it seems a bit uh, bleak. So there is really a war uh, around the file. So in this regard, we, we have kind of uh, amplified our advocacy efforts and we have set up a tool uh, through the Restore Nature campaign. So it's hashtag Restore Nature. Uh, we have set up a tool through which uh, people can actually automatically send a mail to decision makers, so both their ministries, but also members of the European Parliament of their countries, pushing them to support a strong nature restoration regulation. And this is something that even members of the European Parliament themselves have told us, we need more support, we need to see civil society pushing uh, for the file, because this will also help them in their internal negotiations. So I, I definitely urge uh, everyone listening to head over to restorenature.eu 
and uh, sign in order to take action for, for an ambitious and transformative law on, on uh, restora the restoration of nature. Because nature needs us and we also need it as well. And uh, yeah, that's it. That, that's it on my part. So just please sign and continue raising awareness um, on this topic. So thank you for taking the time today and giving us a few insights into the whole process and like everything that's going on. It was very insightful for me and also probably for the listeners, I'm sure. See you next time.